Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with Duke basketball fan Teos Abadia. How's it going, Teos? That was really painful. Painful, Sean. Uh, as everybody knows, uh, my team is not, and I mean everybody, uh, my team has not made it to the NCAA tournament this year. It ended in COVID, which was a perfect summary to the season. And yeah. Yeah, I went to St. Bonaventure, and I this has to have been the first time in my lifetime where St. Bonaventure made the tournament and Duke did not because I can count the number of times they've made the tournament on maybe one hand. Uh, so, and I'm sure Duke was always there uh, when St. Bonaventure was. Yeah. Um, I feel like I have to say something like we'll be back next year to destroy your favorite teams and make you cry, but enjoy this year. <laughs> uh, everybody else deserves it. We played horribly fairly consistently so this is apparently what happens when you do poorly you don't get to go yeah, yeah. i will it's, i will be crying through this month so. it's it, it, even if just one duke fan is humbled this year uh i i feel justified so you you will be the you will wear the hair shirt of duke fans uh for everyone so i appreciate that thank you i will wear the hair shirt <laughs> That's, that's a term i'm not familiar with but it's, now i want to stab it's, it. It, it it's a blue and white uh hair shirt okay yeah and i i just want to make i i want to put that in my game now the hair shirt yeah i i probably used it incorrectly i think it's a biblical reference uh is it yeah oh. it is right. uh yeah penitent for worn by penitence awesome well there you go and with your bit of uh biblical knowledge and basketball knowledge uh delivered we can now actually talk about uh, D&D. Nobody knows what they're going to get on Mastering Dungeons. This it's is true. Mastering even, basketball, mastering shirts, mastering yep. Bibles. Even even us. Even we don't know what we're going to get. We are unearthing a lot of knowledge, John. Mm -hmm. Yes. Ah, ah. So that very clever segue from Teos leads us into our news with the Unearthed Arcana article that covers Folk of the Feywild. So you you called this a few months yeah. ago almost. You know, when you see like, well, it's because I'm a Neverwinter fan, right? This Neverwinter MMO starts announcing they're redoing their Feywild area of the world. And it's like, why? It perfectly works. Like, why do you need to relaunch that? The only thing I can think of is it's from their conversations with wizards and something's coming. And now we can confirm Feyjammer. Feyjammer confirmed. So this Unearthed Arcana article... Uh, we had Gothic lineages before, and then the Van Richten's announcement came out. Does this mean anything? Well, who knows? But we do know that in this article, they talked about races, not lineages, although the uh, article assumes that the rules in Tasha's may be used. So what are the races that we, are, that we got in this article? Well, we got the fairy, we got the hobgoblin of the Feywild, we got owl folk, and we got rabbit folk. I'm hunting rabbit folk. You know, it's funny because this gives you really like a, a, you know, fae can be done a lot of different ways. And this gives you a very much a like Alice in Wonderland type of fae wild. Sure. Right. This is not like uh, you're, a, you know, a pixie or a nixie or, you know, specific like typical D&D &D monster types. Mm -hmm. um, it's quite the opposite, and that's that's sort of surprising. So it makes you wonder what what the tone might be if there is a thing coming. If there's a Vacken Richten's Guide to the Feywild or whoever, you know, certain someone's name, this is different, right? Than yeah. one might expect. 
Yeah. So did you have any specific comments? I did not read these over, but yeah. Okay. I took a look at them and you can find a good breakdown on tribality. The fairy are interesting because they're like we folk described as not a type like a pixie or anything like that. So they're which is sort of like, oh, so I guess fairy people are sort of different than these types that we're used to think of. Whereas I would have previous to this article said that in D&D, a fairy is and I would have listed these various types. So this sort of suggests this other sort of like change things like out of, you know, sort of novels and things like that. Mm -hmm. And they give you characteristics you can roll for, like smelling like fresh brownies. Mm -hmm. You can fly. And as a result of that, we see a sort of typical thing at D&D where if you can fly, they will not give you much else. Right. They can, wizards tends to consider that to be super powerful, which it can be if you abuse it. But if you don't, then it isn't. So it's one of those. It's almost like demanding you to abuse it. Uh, so you get Druidcraft and Fairy Fire, uh, and you can squeeze through a space as narrow as one inch, which I'm not sure how useful that is, but there you go. Uh, but you can fly, and that's the main thing. Or if you're a Hobgoblin, which Hobgoblin appeared in Volos, but this is sort of a variant of it. You have the ability to kind of feed off of your help action, and it kind of boosts the help action and makes it a bonus action to help, which is kind of interesting. And then they have a renamed version of what in Bolas was called Saving Face. Uh, and here it's called Fortune from the Many. And if you miss with an attack roll, the idea is that you sort of feel shamed. They don't say it in this version, but that's the Bolas thing is that you, because of Hobgoblins being sort of in mass troops, you're not performing up to par. So the idea is that the number of allies that see you up to five give you a plus one bonus each to your next attack. And there's a certain number of times you can do that. Alfolk can also fly, and they have a kind of interesting thing rules-wise, which is this nimble flight feature. They can fly equal to their walking speed, which by default is 30 feet. Mm -hmm. And when you fall, this is because they don't have hover. So when you fall, you can use your reaction, make a dexterity saving throw to stop falling, and fly in place until the start of your next turn. And this is because in Xanathar's with the optional falling rules, if you don't have hover and you're not prone, you fall. And you fall, I think something like 200 feet in a round or something like that. Mm -hmm. And you take an enormous amount of damage. So this is a chance to let you not do that. But they didn't want to give you hover, which I think is so fascinating. They gave the faith folk, um, the fairy that gets hover. Uh, but the owl doesn't. So you get this, you need to make a DC 10 dexterity saving throw to not plummet to your doom, which is interesting. Yeah, it makes you... I mean, obviously giving the save is better than not, but it still gives you pause about flying really high yeah. in the air because yeah. all it takes is the one not prone condition to DC 10 and you're, yeah. you know, you, you plummet probably to your death or at least take a significant amount of damage depending yeah. on how high up you are. So in, in the show notes, you can find kind of more of those rules there. The rabbit folk, um, th th this is the idea of, you know, a lucky rabbit's foot. You have lucky footwork. When you fail at dexterity saving throw, you can use a reaction roll D4 and add to the result. You are faster at initiative. You add your proficiency bonus to initiative. Hmm. And both the rapid folk and owl folk are interesting in that you can choose to be either medium or small. Hmm. So you make that choice and you create your character and then that's it. Okay. Rabbit folk also have a funny rabbit hop. Once during each of your turns when you walk at least five feet, you can hop rolling a D12 and moving that many feet in a direction of your choice, which is really kind of fun. Yeah. Um, well, it's, 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 it's it's interesting, but then again, if you're playing on a grid, what's the difference between a one and a five? Or what's the yes. difference between a six and a ten? Right. Uh is is there a difference? Or you know, it's right. It, and would a would a 
would you round up no matter what? Like, let's say I roll a two. Right. Do you mean, does that mean I don't leave my current square? Exactly. Or, or is the DM going to be like, well, you got to get some benefits. So I guess you roll a five. Huh. That's <laughs> it's superbly interesting, right? And just that idea that you're sort of like, you get your movement speed plus then this random piece. Right. And you yeah, have to, but you have no control over it, right? Say you only want to go five feet. Right. But it says you roll a die and move that many oh, feet. It doesn't say you can choose to move that many feet. So you could go further oh, yeah. than you wanted. I don't That's know. really kind of funny. That's uh, huh. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Well, yeah, overall it it's interesting. You know, it harkens back to when D D started, when certain mythological ideas, the idea of the pixie, the idea of a hobgoblin were given form. Mm -hmm. And this almost seems to go back and say, well, mythologically speaking, a fairy can be anything. Not necessarily, yeah. you say, smell of fresh brownies. And of course, my thoughts goes to the actual creature in D&D. Brownie. The brownie is like, I don't know if smelling of fresh brownie is good. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the smell of fresh brownie in the morning. Yeah. Uh, Leave yeah. your milk out. Yep. So that's, uh, yeah, I... Yeah, I like the direction of that. I think, the, mechanically speaking, as you already mentioned, there's a lot of questions uh, uh -huh. throughout. But hey, it's a playtest for version for a reason. Yeah, and and you know, I I hope that Wizards honestly sometimes throws in some things to just see what people respond to it. Yeah, you know, like we're, they're not planning on going in this direction, but let's actually put that in it to just see what people say. Uh, I would consider doing that sometimes for some items. So absolutely, yeah. It's very, very interesting. It's interesting to see the sort of whimsy to these choices, right? So it'd be interesting to see where this goes. And, and if it does become some the heart of a product, that would be really interesting. Yeah. Well, it would make sense, I would think, to go from sort of the dark Ravenloft feel to something more sprightly, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. that would make sense. Well, next is news. It's not news to me, but it must be news to Teos. Uh, so I will let you take take that over. Yeah, you were on the Tome Show along with JVC Perry and, of course, the host Jeff and Tracy discussing how to extend your D&D 5e hard book campaign beyond the levels covered by the book. Mm -hmm. I watched it. It was cool. Yeah, it was a it was a fun discussion. A lot of it got into what does high level play mean? Is there an audience for high level play? Because obviously, once you finish a hardcover book, you're you know, normally in the 10 to 20 area. So, you know, we did cover that quite a bit, but then that we gave tips about, you know, when you finish the hardcover, what are some things you may do or how do you set up the players to know what they want to do after yeah. you finish a hardcover? I thought that was a really good point. I forget you made it specifically, but, but that was about that idea of be sure to know what your players want out of this, what they're looking for. And also it came up that issue where, you know, there were folks on the show who were kind of like talking about this, how to say that the idea that if there were more high level adventures, then we'd see more high level play. And and I think both you and I feel that's not true at all, because we've seen this time and time again, that lots of people make high level things and they don't sell as well. They're not adopted. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. reality is like any, there's plenty of content at all levels if you want to look for it, but we know what's being played. Right. And we know what leads to a gold medal and beyond, and it's not a high-level adventure. Yep. And, it, you know, some people will say, well, if there were more out there, then more people would play it. It's just not the case. 
No. I mean, we may be able to force more high-level play using, I don't know, dynamite or <laughs> threats. <laughs> but for the most part, sales carry this through. Yeah. If we have an adventure path out there that goes from levels 1 to 20, the first level adventure will sell 10 times the amount of the 20th level adventure. Yeah. And, you know, five times the amount of the 10th level adventure, just yeah. just the way the way the market bears. Yeah. And, and even if you allow for entry at those higher levels, right, it's not just because of continuity, but just, yeah. Or if you create a one shot at high levels, it's, you know, like, yeah, James and Dracasso has talked about his adventure with Planet of the Duress, which is amazing, mm -hmm. but it doesn't sell like his other work. And, and it's, it's as good as anything else that, you know, yeah. that he offers, but yeah. And even then, I mean, it, that's a very novel idea too. And the novelty I'm sure increased the sales above what it would have been if it wasn't quite as clever and right and attractive so you know yeah. taking all that awesome into account, cover yeah fun adventure i played it fun adventure yeah. yep. amazing it's really fun easy to run you know for what it's dealing with it's it's a superb mm -hmm. thing but it's not where it, you know yeah. that should be an adamant if, if it was a low level adventure it'd be adamantine for sure for sure yep so uh speaking of adamantine dm david who deserves all the adamantine credit for his great blog mm -hmm. talks about how to adjust combat difficulty on the fly using the magic of role playing so yeah, take it cool. take it away so he builds on a deep dive dm deep dive that mike shea and ryan service did by then talking about how to adjust combat challenge in a way that isn't fudging dice and he gives a number of examples and walks through why these are effective so things like one that Mike Shea loves, adjusting the hit points of a creature within the hit dice range. So if you look at any monster entry, it has an average hit point value, but it's based off the hit dice, and you can go anywhere in that range, lower or higher, and be legal. And so that idea of before the combat even starts, you can do this, or during the combat, it's up to you. Give a monster that is tough to defeat max damage, so it's thrilling instead of a slog. So DM David talks about the gargoyle and how it's a hard-to-damage creature that doesn't really deal that much damage back. So if you bump up its damage, it becomes a thrilling fight, not one that you're waiting to end. Change tactics based on intelligence or on being rash, overconfident villains or cowardly in ways that the, the party gets why this is happening, right? The players understand that this is part of what the creature's doing, but it helps you moderate that battle and make it end faster, for example. So rather than calling the battle like, ah, hey, you guys are going to win, just have them make some stupid tactics that put them into prime position to be torn apart by the PCs. Yep. Giving beasts cunning that reflects their nature, like wolves gang up on the weak, rats duck and cover. So yeah, it's it's a really nice read and, and the the accompanying video with Mike Shane Ryan Service is also fun. Sweet. Uh the D D Adventures League wants your feedback. So you can share your feedback on the Wizards Adventures League program. This was a Twitter feed, but it leads to a survey at uh, Survey Gizmo. And have have you taken the survey? I haven't yet. It just came out this morning, so I, okay. I'm gonna see what happens. But they did say you don't have to be in the Adventures League to fill this out. So you could just be somebody saying what you would want out of a program or why you don't participate or anything like that. That's there you go. My understanding. So even if you don't play Adventures League or even don't plan to, you could still provide feedback that might help the play campaign take on a shape that you would be interested in playing and a lot has come out in the adventurers league since last we checked in there is a new adventurers league epic called terror in the ten towns 
written by Jenny Loveday and John Connor Self. It has rules for multiple tables and play or playing at a single table, which the last few, uh, at least the last couple epics in the AL campaign or the Eberron campaign, I forgot the name of it. So not like I worked on it for two years. The uh, Oracle of War. Thank you, Oracle of War. Guidance for running the event online, which has been happening a lot lately. Uh, so all that is out and up so you can get it on the DMs Guild and run it for just a single table or use it at a larger event. What else has been come out recently, Deus? Speaking of Oracle of War, our good friend Andy Demps wrote a 14th level adventure. Eberron 14 from Dust is out. Andy's well known in the Adventures League circles as a great DM. You can find him on Virtual Weekends, Experiences Tables. And this adventure deals with the Order of the Emerald Claw digging deep beneath Metrol. It's the first in a trilogy, optimized for APL 14, because all the adventures let you level up. So um, that's kind of cool. And I don't think we talked about the previous adventure, Stonefire, which is the 13th Eberron adventure. That's by Rich Lescoflair, so you know that's good. Also available on the guild. Mm -hmm. That would be the last adventure of that trilogy that brings us into Tier 3. Yeah, so good times. Also, having been released are the Moon 9-3 series of adventures from Bald Man Games taking place in the Moonshade Isles. The latest of the Rime of the Frost Maiden Plague of Ancients campaign, a DDL 1004, Cold Benevolence by Justice Armin, and 105, A Blight in the Darkness by Patricia Barnaby. So if you've been playing that uh, Plague of Ancients campaign, the new season set in the Rime of the Frost Maiden world, you can get those now. What about the Masters campaign? So this has been a kind of a topic on Twitter you know, about all the different campaigns in D&D AL. But two new releases have come out for what's called the Dream of the Red Wizards campaign. And this is one where there was a large delay between releases that has, I think, hurt the ability of fans to sort of follow what's going along. But this is part four of what's called the Storm King's Descent series, though you can play it on its own. And so if you're part of the Masters campaign, this is a tier four adventure that is eight hours long. So you're certainly getting a ton of content. Mm -hmm. So that was the Harrowing of Hell. Deals with sort of Avernus aspects and ties into Storm's King's Thunder. And then there is an epic that has been released, Wings of Death. And this is a four hour epic. It has rules for playing with just a single table. It's optimized for two different APLs, 13 and 18. So anybody from level 11 to 20 can play through this epic. And one thing I noticed when I was looking at this, I don't know if other adventures have had this, but on the cover, it has content warnings for things such as possession. And I thought that was an interesting idea to put that on the cover and just say like, hey, you know, darkness, isolation, whatever, like mm -hmm. put that right on the cover. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't see that. So it's interesting to see that they are doing that. But now with the news out of the way, we can get on with our review of the player's side of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. When last our intrepid adventurers spoke, we were talking about the ranger and the optional rules that Tasha's gives for the ranger. But now we are going to talk about the subclasses that the ranger is provided in Tasha's. So the first subclass, the archetype known as the Fey Wanderer. Fey. It's all Fey now. Yep. So somehow. In some way, you have been affected by the Feywild. Some Fey have gotten into your bloodline. Some Fey power has changed you. 
And so magic fruit from a talking tree is one of the examples. Nice. (laughs) So somehow not, not specific. You can choose your, your own, uh, fae sort of background, but it has left you with certain powers and those powers we will talk about now at level three, you get dreadful strikes. When you hit a creature with a weapon, you can deal an extra 1d4 psychic damage to that target, but you can only do this once per turn. This damage increases to 1d6. I want to point out, it says to the target, because it, it can say which can take this extra damage once per turn, which is interesting. So in theory, you could affect multiple targets and dish out the damage multiple times because there's different targets. When you hit a creature with a weapon, you can deal. Yep. Which can take this. Extra, okay, yeah, that's that's true. So. If you're two-weapon fighting, you can spread it around, apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is psychic damage, which, you know, for most creatures is is something that they cannot resist. And it increases to a d6 when you hit 11th level. Do you want to compare it to the Colossus Slayer? Yeah, I always look at the Hunter as the kind of ranger type that that's sort of your baseline for being the strong choice people will usually make. Uh, Colossus Slayer is 1d8 to a wounded creature once per turn. So this, you know, given that it could happen more than once in a round, mm-hmm. could be pretty sweet. Yep. And now we can also add this to extra damage a ranger can do with maybe a hunt, hunter's mark or... Uh, so it's slowly yep. adding up the number of dice that you're going to roll as, as the ranger to do yeah. damage, yep. which is also good if you crit. Uh, Because then you get to double all of those dice. At third level, you also get Fey Wanderer Magic. So these are additional spells that become ranger spells. When you take the subclass, you're looking at things like Charm Person, Misty Step, Dispel Magic, Dimension Door, and Mislead. All perfectly cromulent as a Fey Blessing in spell form. You also get Fey Wild Gifts, which is simply a sort of table of role-playing things no rules attached to them that happen to you because of this gift such as seasonal flowers spring from your hair each morning when you wake up it's a cool idea i like that yeah the idea of just putting in a no rules just fun Mm -hmm. you know rider is a nice way to reinforce theme yeah and it, it does sort of give clues for role playing tips role playing objectives role playing just sort of uh, sort of prompts, role-playing prompts yeah. that you can use not just with this, but with other characters as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's a good guide for how the designers of the game see role-playing and these details incorporating themselves into the game, which yeah. some people and need, it, right? Some people yeah. need that sort of guidance. Yeah. Well, I think we all benefit from it because a lot of times when you look at these, you go like, well, I wouldn't do that, but I'd do something like it. Like one of them is illusory butterflies flutter around you while you take a short or long rest. And that's cool. But, you know, someone else might say, well, what if when I take a short or long rest, you know, sort of this little fey companion comes out, right? A little brownie or a little pixie or a magic lizard or whatever and crawls around me and protects me. Like, that's a fun idea. Right? You could yeah. have this little visible guardian. And then the warlocks, you know, with the fiend pack or whatever can <laughs> yeah. say, well, wait a second. If you have that, well, I have, you know, smoke while I take a short rest. Black smoke pours out of my head or, yeah, whatever. If you're not careful, it could lead to role-playing. Exactly. We we wouldn't want that. We wouldn't want that. So at level three, you also get another ability called Otherworldly Glamour. Whenever you make a charisma check, you gain a bonus to the check equal to your wisdom modifier. 
And in addition, you gain a proficiency in one of the following skills of your choice, deception, performance, or persuasion. So level seven, we're going to get to one that I think is really interesting. Beguiling twist. You have advantage on saving throws against being charmed or frightened. Cool. But then whenever you or a creature you can see within 120 feet of you succeeds on a saving throw against being charmed or frightened, you can then use your reaction to force a different creature you can see within 120 feet of you to make a wisdom saving throw against your spell save DC. If the save fails, they are charmed or frightened by you, your choice, for one minute. Target can repeat the saving throw at the end of each of their turns. So this is sort of interesting. Like Rangers have some levels and subclasses that are kind of not particularly strong. And, and so like the hunter has steel will, which give you advantages on saves versus frightened. So this is charmed and frightened, plus this special when somebody makes a save, you can spread it around. And this is really quite interesting because you can, if someone tries to charm one of your friends, you can use this. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you're reflecting or redirecting the charm. Mm -hmm. But also, if you, say, pair up in a party with a wizard that, or warlock that does lots of uh, charm or frighten spells, a lot of times those are save or nothing. Mm -hmm. And now this is a little extra bit that you can do that teamwork, or even you yourself might have such spells. And suddenly they are more useful because you can always do this afterwards yep. if you have your reaction. Now, I have a question, and, and maybe my example does not exist, but I'm going to assume it does. Mm -hmm. It says you have advantage on saving throws against being charmed or frightened. What happens in a case where we sometimes see abilities that, that say something like, make a save, uh, like you become grappled. While grappled, you are also charmed. Say that grapple has a saving throw attached to it. Would you get advantage against the original thing that leads to the charm? So we've seen wording recently in some of the Tasha's that it said ends the effect. And this doesn't say that. So I would say that only when it says it ends the effect okay. does it take everything out. I think the Paladin had, one of the Paladin subclasses had this whole ends the effect. And that was interesting because it was the type of thing you would be ending often comes with a rider like that. And so probably it would end the grapple and the restrain and whatever else is part of it. Mm -hmm. But this, in this case, I think you would only not have that part. Plus these are conditions. So I would say that you just, well, I guess there's advantage on saving. Yeah. So I, I guess it's advantage on the saving throws. In this case, whatever the save governs, you have advantage on that. Okay. It's not just ending the effect. This is right. the advantage on the save. So okay. you get yeah. advantage on the save, even if the save involves other parameters. And I can't think of an example off the top of my head where some other condition leads to a, a charmed or a frightened condition, but I, was, probably is I, I assume that, that there is. It's like being turned, yeah. right? If you yeah. turn something, the turned is a thing, but while you are turned, you are frightened. So right. it's, ju it's just an interesting uh, thought yeah, exercise, I guess. But I, I've also noticed, I mean, to me, and this has been a topic recently in, in the Twitterverse, is... Is there a 5.5e out there? And some people saying, we already have 5.5e. And if you look at Tasha's, there are a number of little places where wording is different mm -hmm. than it ever has been before. And sometimes it's very obviously done, but other times it's much more subtle. And I can't help but thinking like, oh, I wonder if that's the new way we're supposed to write that wording. Mm -hmm. Which is very interesting to see these kinds of changes. Yeah. 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 That's that's. We could have a whole we could have a whole show on that, but <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll leave it there. So at level eleven, you get Fey reinforcements. You know the spell summon Fey. It doesn't count against the number of ranger spells you know, and you can cast it without material component. You can also cast it once without a spell slot, 
and you regain the ability to do so when you finish a long rest. Whenever you are casting the spell, you can modify it so it doesn't require concentration. And if you do so, the spell's duration becomes one minute for that casting. Super cool to see concentration go away because, you know, if you're in there melee fighting as a ranger, uh, you're going to get some hits and concentration will break. So this just separates that out. Summon Fey is a new spell in this book, which mm-hmm. reflects a number of spells where you summon a single creature. So it gets rid of that whole, like, filling the battlefield with tons of summoned creatures. It makes it summoning better. It's just a single thing. But they are strong, and you do have to kind of take their stat block. And the stat block is, is affected by the level at which you cast the spell. So if you upcast it, its armor class goes up, its hit point goes up. Uh, and the number of times it attacks can go up. So it matters what you do there. And in this case, the neat thing about Summon Fey is that they have a bonus action where they can teleport 30 feet and then choose from one of three effects, having advantage on the attack, charming someone if that target fails to save, or filling a five-foot cube with magical darkness, which is kind of cool. So you can now do this once for free, which is kind of neat. Yeah. I'm glad that the spell itself is just a single creature. Over the years, we've dubbed a number of spells by by the name slot breaker <laughs> in the sense that you have a four-hour slot to play a game and this <laughs> this spell summons 12 creatures each of them gets an attack roll plus a movement plus a you know a bonus action and seven hours later you have finished your turn uh so it's it's great to see it. i mean that, that's still a lot of stuff happening yeah. If they can use the most action to do that, but at least it's only one creature and, and not five. The other thing is, and if you look at 5e, characters are very different than monsters, and they are made to fight each other, but not themselves. Mm-hmm. So in this game, you see very little dominating a character, like truly, you know, extended domination, because that would be too much. And in a similar way, it's actually a really bad idea to have monsters fight monsters because mm-hmm. they can't kill each other as well. Right. They're, they're not made for that. that. That's not a design thing. And and so all those mass summon things that we see do not particularly work well for combats. It, it throws all of the encounter balance out the window yeah. in a way that's not immediately apparent, but isn't pleasing. And if you said it sort of slogs and slows down. So having a single thing with a more reasonable stat block is better. Yeah, yeah that, that's a great point. You know, I think in general, you know, PCs are, are made to kill monsters. And monsters are made to slightly challenge PCs. And so you're absolutely right that mixing those can lead to some un- unpleasant gameplay. Yeah. And, and players just deal more damage generally than monsters and have this ability to spike damage. And so when you just have a monster who has to fight a monster, mm-hmm. it'll take them many, many rounds yeah. to kill all those summoned monsters. And there isn't that much time in the combat. They'll be dead by then. So, so then it creates a weird, you know, do you just as a DM ignore all these monsters, but they're clogging the whole air? It's, yeah, it's right. just, oof, don't get me started on summoning monsters. All right. <laughs> and at level 15, we get Misty Wanderer. You can cast Misty Step without expending a spell slot. You can do this a number of times equal to your wisdom modifier until you finish a long rest. In addition, whenever you cast Misty Step, you can bring along one willing creature that you can see within five feet of you. That creature teleports to an unoccupied space of your choice within five feet of your destination. So Misty Step and a friend. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, it's not super powerful, but I do remember in 4E, there were a couple of players who in my area that loved doing this. One of my friends was always carrying my poor short dwarf around with them. 
And it was just a blessing. Like, do you need me to take you to the big creature? Yes, yes, I do. <laughs> yes, please. It was super useful. Yep. Awesome. So, uh, overall, thoughts on the Fey Wanderer? Yeah, cool. I mean, this is neat. Now you want to like make a rabbit version of this and have at it. Rabbit Ranger Fey Wanderer. Rabbit Folk uh, Ranger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. Why not? Leaping the, four feet. Yep. <laughs> this is four and a half feet. The second of the archetypes, the subclasses, is the Swarm Keeper, which has its connection to swarms in nature. It's interesting, though, that they never talk about insects directly in their description, because when I think swarm, right, the first thing you think of generally are bees or insects, yeah. but this just talks about nature spirits. So it doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be insects. Which is cool because, you know, a lot of people don't like the idea of insects. I love insects. I have no problem with them. But but so if it creeps you out, you can think of this differently and, and maybe that helps you right. accept it more. It can be a swarm of pixies. It can be a swarm right. of uh, you know, larger Butterflies. rodents. Right. right. Yeah. So the the appearance of the swarm, there is a table that you can roll on or you can choose your own. And then once on uh, level three, you get gathered swarm. So that's when you figure out what kind of swarm you have bonded with or that has bonded with you. And once on each of your turns, you cause the swarm to assist you in one of the following ways immediately after you hit a creature with an attack. So you swing, you hit, the swarm appears and does what? It does an extra 1d6 piercing damage. It yep. can force the target to succeed on a strength saving throw versus your spell DC or be moved 15 feet horizontally in the direction of your choice. So it sort of carries your target away. You can move the target five feet horizontally in the direction of your choice. So notice uh, it's, you move. Oh, yourself. I'm sorry. You are moved five feet yep. horizontally. Woo, sorry about that. Yeah. And those are the three choices. It's so cool. I love this. Uh, this reminds me of my favorite subclass type design ever, which is the Essentials Hunter Ranger. Mm -hmm. that came out in uh, 4E's Essentials line, where each round you had sort of three at-will attacks you could choose from, and they were all tactically different. And what I love about this, this is where I just I so appreciate this design. None of these are hugely a big deal. Like, one is just straight-up damage, easy, roll another D6. The other one, you're moving somebody, but it's not going to be the end of the world to move them 15 feet. Save or done. And then the other one is you move yourself five feet. And I like that these are simple but tactical on a number of levels. Different players will use these in different ways. Some people will just pour out damage each time. Really cool. I love it. And it's interesting, as Tribality.com noticed when they reviewed this, they said that the, the push of yourself or the movement of yourself is much less than the one you do to a foe. You know, why is that? And they posited that maybe it's because you can sort of get out of trouble without provoking. Mm-hmm. So they're limiting the benefit from that or getting out of harmful spaces and things like that. But it is interesting that it's 15 feet to move a foe. Right. You can move yourself only five. That's an interesting design yeah. choice. Yeah, it is. At level three, you get Swarm Keeper Magic. So again, you get some additional spells, one of them being the Cantrip Mage Hand. So essentially, the Swarm becomes a hand, and then you can use that to do what you would be able to with a mage hand, which I think is visually cool. I'm not a visual Super person, cool. but I can actually close my eyes and envision this swarm of pixies. Uh, yeah, fluttering birds that yeah. go grab a thing for you, right? It's right out of a yeah. Cinderella, movie. isn't it? Cinderella, yeah, 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 totally. You also get the spells Fairy Fire. Cool. It's uh, the swarm surrounds something. <laughs> Web, 
the swarm mm-hmm. captures something gaseous form all right you turn into the swarm this you become yeah. the swarm yeah. uh, arcane eye the swarm becomes an eye and thinks sees things for you or insect plague which pretty much speaks yeah. for itself on the nose uh so tell me about the level seven ability as a bonus action you get a flying speed of 10 feet and can hover this effect lasts one minute or until you're incapacitated um so it's interesting that it's it's a, a just a small increment but it does last for minutes so it's great for exploration to get up onto that ledge or whatever but in combat even could still let you do adjustments 10 feet is not bad lets you get above some things and reach certain places get over terrain you can use a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus. You regain all expended uses when you finish a long rest. Some designers feel that any kind of flight impedes dungeon design. I don't generally find that. Like, I don't, you know, like if a, if a chasm is easy to cross because one character can fly, it still requires interaction. Plus, these they might be small and everything. I don't know that they can easily carry, you know, people across. But even if they do, like, I think that's a neat moment to shine. Mm-hmm. I don't generally find that the design of something like a chasm that must be crossed hinges so terribly upon it. And to me, it, it's much less of an issue than a lot of things that spells break in design. Right. You know, like, I don't find this to be a big deal. I don't know if you feel that way, Sean. Do you feel like flying wrecks your design? I, I, I think it can, but it doesn't necessarily have to. And really all it comes back to is this status of exploration as a pillar that is not clear and is not well served by the rules and it's sometimes it's hard to do them well because players and dms and groups have different sensibilities for what they want they don't want exploration you know they they want a hand wave exploration and get to the fight or the role play or both Mm -hmm. so it's it's hard to make rules that handle it well when it's not handled well as a whole yeah that's fair Mm-hmm. And I think the only time I worry about something like flight is at really low levels, because when you get to higher levels, the threats that the characters should be facing should have ways to deal with flight, whether it be spells or ranged attacks or just good tactics. Unless you're a Tarask, uh, then you can just stand on the ground to get pummeled by uh, by bad yeah. guys. And so, at level yeah. seven, when this is coming in, you know, there could be a dimension door. There could be a number of ways that people can yeah. magically bypass a thing anyway. So I don't right. know that's big. And and as as a DM, it's not difficult to deal with these issues. The, you know, the, the enemy is on the ground and all the players are in the air. All the enemies have potions of flying. Congratulations. <laughs> right? I mean, it's... Or they climb up the walls and jump off of them or whatever, right. you know, there are ways to. Right. Mm-hmm. And, oh, they knocked you prone while you're flying. Guess what? Right. <laughs> so there, there should always be a threat. Uh, yeah. If you're flying, gravity is the great equalizer. That's true. In this case, they have hover, unfortunately. There's yeah. More, but... Well, that, that's true. That's true. But, you know, flight in general. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at only 10 feet for one it's minute. at the end of the world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So 11th level, you get mighty swarm. Your gathered swarm ability grows mightier in the following ways. The damage that it can do increases from a d6 to a d8. If a creature fails its saving throw against being moved by your swarm, you can also uh, cause the swarm to knock the creature prone. Or when you are moved by the gathered swarm, you gain half cover until the start of your next turn, which is a plus two to armor class and plus two to dexterity saving throws. 
cool. Straight up nice, you know, dig into the feature and make it neater. and yep. But without complicating it too much, it's great. Yep, I like it. And finally, at level 15, you get Swarming Dispersal. When you take damage, you can use your reaction to give yourself resistance to that damage. You vanish into your swarm and then are teleported to an unoccupied space that you can see within 30 feet of you, where you reappear with your swarm. So the swarm kind of cloaks you. Uh, you can use this feature a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus, and you gain back expended uses at the end of a long rest. Cool. It's neat. And you, why don't we just touch on the Beastmaster companions? Yeah, sure. So Beastmaster is one of the most sort of maligned parts of the original Player's Handbook Ranger for a number of, of reasons. And so this tries to provide an alternative. And this is a set of rules that sort of exists in this chapter where you can, instead of the level three Ranger's Companion feature, choose this level three Beastmaster feature that replaces it. So this is clearly a patch. <laughs> Download it now in your Tasha's book. Yep. And upload it to your player's handbook. So the way it works is you magically summon a primal beast. It draws strength from your bond with nature. And the beast is friendly to you. It follows your commands. You then choose a stat block. And if you recall the way it normally works, you would normally go into the back of your player's handbook or any other source where you have a beast and you would choose one of those to bring in based on various rules. This now says, nope, forget all that. You're, you're not surfing for which kind of companion you have. It's one of these three, beast of the land, beast of the sea, or beast of the sky. And your proficiency bonus is used in several places to scale them up, which is awesome design. I've been asking for this since D&D &D Next, and I love every time I see it. The beast sort of has special markings, so you can see that it's mystical in nature. And the way it works in combat is it'll act on your turn right after you. It can move and use its reaction on its own. Uh, or actually during your turn. It can move and use its reaction on its own, but the only action it takes is the dodge action unless you take a bonus action on your turn to command it to take another action. So the downside of it is that you must allocate your bonus actions to making it do things. Uh, it has the usual rules where if you're unconscious or whatever, it then springs into action to defend itself, but otherwise it's waiting on you. The extra rule you get here is you can sacrifice one of your attacks when you take the attack action to command the beast to take the attack action. So what this means, and, and um, tribality.com sort of broke down this attack routine, and it's at the end of this in our show notes, where, you know, at third level, you can attack once, and you can use your bonus action to have it attack. At fifth level, you can attack once, the beast, beast can attack once, and then you take a bonus action, or you can have you attack twice and the beast once. So it gives you that ability, and that will increase yeah. as you get more attacks, right, where you can choose that up based on whether you want to do more attacks or have it do it, which is cool. Mm -hmm. If the beast has died within the last hour, you can use your action to touch it and expend a spell slot of first level higher to bring it back to life with all its hit points. Uh, it does take a minute, so it's something you do after a combat. When you finish a long rest, you can swap what primal beast you have. All three of the beasts have an armor class of 13 plus the proficiency bonus. Hit points are 5 plus 5 times your ranger level. They have dark vision, and you add your proficiency bonus to any ability check or saving throw the beast makes. Then you have the three types. The beast of the land gets a climb speed and moves at 40 feet for both. It has a charge feature. If it moves 20 feet and hits, deals extra damage, and the target gets a save or gets knocked prone. And then its attack is to maul the target. It's your spell modifier to hit. It's a D8 plus 2 plus your proficiency bonus worth of slashing damage. Very straightforward, easy going. It's your bread and butter choice. Beast of the sea has only a speed of 5 or a swim of 60. 
Mm-hmm. So you know when you're bringing that in. It's got to be your sea adventure or nothing. doesn't tell me whether I can ride it, which is the immediate question that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. It can breathe both air and water, and it has a binding strike where it attacks, does a D6 plus the usual damage boosts, and then the target is grappled. Escape DC is your spell save DC. Yep. Beast of the Sky, speed of 10 feet, fly at 60, and it has the flyby feature, so it can fly by and attack, and it doesn't provoke when it moves away. And the action is to shred, which is your spell modifier to hit, and it only does a D4 plus 3 plus proficiency bonus slashing damage. So it's pretty low damage, which is kind of depressing, but I guess it has that flyby so it can be more survivable. I don't know. We'll see. I, I don't know that that's going to be chosen a lot. but Yeah. And and as you know, in our show notes, uh, the, the advantage is you don't have to, you don't get players trying to optimize their choice. and sit for 20 minutes thumbing through the monster manual trying yeah. to find the most optimal creature for the exact situation that they're in you just choose one of these three and go yeah and it's the same thing with summoning creatures the same thing with wild shaping you know this mm-hmm. idea of paging through tomes has always been a, a downside to the game and you do meet those players who are super well prepped and they make it work but it's still a lot of tinkering for very little gain. So I like this approach. Yep. I like also the clarity on sort of how to get the creature back and, and how to, yeah, how it interacts with you. It's, it's, these are overall, I, I like the rules. You know, do they turn the Beastmaster Ranger into something you really dig? I don't know. You know, I haven't looked at it from that perspective. I've never played a Beastmaster Ranger. Yeah. I had one friend that played one early on in 5e and they quickly swapped out to something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's all i know about it but uh so this is good but i li- like the approach taken here sure so that is our dive into the ranger and next time we will continue our look through tasha's players content with the infamous or famous rogue so now let's go over to the dm side of things and look at what tasha says about this dm topic sidekicks so we have talked about sidekicks before because they have been used or discussed in a variety of ways. There was a UA article about them in the Essentials Kit box set. They were introduced as well. And so what we see here refines those things. So Teos, talk in general, what is a sidekick? So the concept is that you are bringing someone along on your adventure that is sort of like an NPC, but with a codified set of rules. So it's not just like, oh, whatever their stat block might be, they're coming along. This sort of gives it a solidity, uh, a stable approach that you can use with the idea that it approximates the benefit of a character, but is simpler to run. And this has been a concept that goes back to the beginning of the game, right? We used to call them like followers or henchmen. And it was this idea that often adventures were too hard, especially if you had a few characters only, a few players only. So you would bolster your party by hiring various things. You'd have them walk ahead of you and take trap damage. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the DMG would, players have would tell you not to do that, but you would do it because that was obviously how you survive. <laughs> this, this is a, in, in this edition, it's more around the concept of when you are one or two players and you need something else. Or if you want to be playing a simpler character, like you, you don't want all this layer of stuff, this is a nice way to play something that should be on par with a character, more or less, um, but will be far easier to run. Yeah. So there are specific rules, as Teo says, for creating a sidekick. 
they give three versions of the sidekick, calling it a sidekick class. They have the expert, the spellcaster, and the warrior. So let's talk for just a bit about each and how you create them. So the text tells you that you can take any creature with a stat block in, in the in the D&D book with a CR, a challenge rating of one half or lower. And as long as that creature has a language that it can speak, you can use that stat block and adjust it based on those three sort of subclass sidekick. Yep. Which is very interesting design, right? So it, it gives you a, a lot of freedom around uh, on the design side to choose this stat block and then pump it up. And the idea is that the pumping up is what allows it to stick mechanically to the character levels that the party happens to have, adding onto that base stat block. Now, there are some better CR one half creatures than others. So, you know, there might, but, but I think in the end, it won't matter a whole lot. So it's probably fairly true. And, and in general, the DM is choosing this. So it's not like you're looking to exploit it. You know, the, the players are not driving this. The, uh, the DM is. And it's funny that they kind of, I sort of feel like the organization is chapters are a little weird. It's like they tell you how to do this part of it. Then they tell you how to gain the classes. Then they tell you how to pick them. It's a sort of, I feel like it's a little sorted strangely. Yeah. But we'll follow mostly with what they're, we'll, we'll, we'll talk. They, they have the first section is creating a sidekick. So let's just go through that part, creating a sidekick. Sure. What you do is you figure out the level of the sidekick by looking at the average party level of the characters in your party. So you're all first level. It's pretty easy to figure out that you're going to have a first level sidekick. And then as the party levels, or if they start at a higher level, then you can follow a progression very similar to up leveling a character in gaining more abilities. Yeah, and they say even if it's not adventuring, you know, it, it levels up through the things it may be doing in its life. Mm -hmm. So how is it similar and how is it different than a regular character? Well, uh, it levels up when the party levels up, as Teo says. For hit points, it gains a hit die with each level. And its uh, hit point maximum increases by a roll of that hit die plus the con modifier. It doesn't say take half, you know, half the die and add right. the con modifier. So yeah. apparently it wants you to roll, which mm -hmm. is, is okay with me. Uh, how, what happens if it reaches uh, zero hit points? Does it die like a monster? No, it doesn't. It falls unconscious and makes death saving throws just like any player would. Which is a good addition because there are these, in the rules, there's some pieces that sort of suggest that NPCs should just die, which I find often dissatisfying, but, but that's the way kind of the rules are in general. Yeah. <laughs> so this, this gives it player rules, which is nice. Right. For proficiency bonus, it's based on level and class. So each time the proficiency bonus increases, it gains a plus one to hit on attack rolls or its spell DCs increase or ability DCs increase by one. Yeah. And when it gains the ability score improvement, just modify anything in the stat block that would change. So if it's a strength-based uh, character, all its strength-based attacks increase by one. Yeah, it kind of gives you the, uh, if it's unclear, assume that both abilities can be used, so bump it up anyway. There you go. And then with those basics out of the way, it discusses the three different sidekick classes, the expert, as I said, spellcaster and warrior. So let's start with the expert. 
Yeah, and I don't know that we have to super get into all the features, though. Our, our show notes do have them all. Yeah. But but there's you can see kind of what they're doing here, being like a rogue or a you know bard type kind of master of of knowledge type character here. In each of these, you will get bonuses to a save, some number of skills. So the expert gets five skills of your choice, mm -hmm. right? So it's much more skilled than the others. It can wear light armor. It gains proficiency in all simple weapons and two tools, as long as it has a simple martial weapon and a stat block. And then what it kind of does is it use, it has helpful, so it can use help as a bonus action. It gets the cunning action of a rogue. It has expertise that so pumps up the skills. And then it has sort of abilities that feed off of the help action so that it's doing that more often over time, which is kind of cool. It'll get evasion, yeah. things like that. Yeah. It, it, it's making, instead of being cool, it's making other people more cool. Yeah, it does. Uh, is, it does lean towards that, which is neat. Yeah, which is nice for a, a sidekick, uh, to, you know, class to have. Uh, the spellcaster, you get proficiency in one save, a couple of skills from a list, light armor, and simpler martial weapons, gaining proficiency with with simple weapons. So now you're you're looking at the role of the the mage or the healer, or they call it warlock. the prodigy, which is like the bard or the warlock. So they get spell slots based on a table. They know two cantrips and one first level spell of your choice. And the list they give is limited, which is nice mm -hmm. because as we're going to talk about later, you kind of want these to be as simple as possible. So, you know, giving it magic missile, giving it thunder wave, something, you know what it does. You can roll the saves. It does some damage and, and on you move. And then uh, it can expand spell slots as, as you go up. Yeah, and it gets at level 14, it can choose a school of magic and um, get benefits to that. Mm -hmm. So it's a sort of, you know, minor boost there. Yep. Uh, and level 20 is the taking damage doesn't break its concentration. Like, okay, sure. <laughs> just just in time. <laughs> uh, yep. I, I would say if you're worrying about your sidekick's concentration, uh, you may have gone a little too far into wondering what this character should be doing they should be yeah. Yeah, doing damage or protecting you not you know not anything right. that is ongoing like that well i think the thing is you know if if you've got a you know a campaign with one dm and one player and the players playing sure. a rogue right then they may want sort of some of those spells that that are maintained to like boost them or something so it's possible right but that that is very true and that is the discussion we'll have in a bit about how these, <laughs> how useful yeah. these are in what situations. Uh, the final class for the sidekick is the warrior. And, you know, as, as it says in the name, it's all about the fighting, right? You can attack, uh, you could choose the attacker, plus two to attack rolls, or defender, use your reaction to impose disadvantage. So you're sort of choosing the forward mo moving force or the <laughs> defending uh, wall in front of you. Yep. Third level improved critical. You get second wind at second and 20th. Battle re readiness uh, at seventh, which gives you advantage on initiative rolls, extra attack along the way, bonuses to AC as you go up. So, you know, sort of a simple fighter type. Yep. So, with all the rules out of the way, the question then becomes why would you want to use a sidekick? <laughs> what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of doing so? And how should it be handled at the table? So let's talk about that last question first. When you add the sidekick, what are the sort of social rules, the, the play rules about how they should be used? Yeah, it's a good question. They, they, I don't feel like they give a strong discussion of that. Uh, they, they do say that the 
sidekick must be a friend of at least one party member, which is sort of an interesting thing because I don't actually kind of find that that's how I introduce NPCs to my, you know, it's the weird. But I guess the idea is that there's some connection could be through backstory or events in play that lead to this person coming along. I don't know that I fully love how that's worded because I honestly, when I like I ran Tomb of Annihilation and there are a number of places where people can join or if you run the Acquisitions Incorporated adventure, Mm -hmm. there are a number of cases where we threw in NPCs where you could, you know, or creatures that you can fight or befriend. And the sidekick rules are, are perfect for those, but they're not your friends yet. You know, there's sort of an alliance there. Right. So, I, you know, I think this is an interesting yeah. discussion. I think I think the point they were going for is have a story reason for them to be with the party. Yeah. And the story, the story reason could be anything. Right. But just give it a good reason, because if you are interested in all in role playing, you're going to want to have a reason for this person to be there. And then you can do cool things with the story with that. Right. They can betray you. Uh, Or they can say, oh, well, I will help you in this battle for another 50 gold pieces, right? You could do cool things in the story with it. So make that connection. And I think that's fascinating that they did not spend time on that, which other editions have done, right? Loyalty, morale, Mm -hmm. you know, what is your charisma score, your leadership score, you know, all kinds of editions from AD and Dion have dealt with this in some way. And they just sort of say, like, they should be your friend. Uh, I don't know that that's how it really works. And, you know, but but I think maybe they were trying to sidestep that and make the assumption that this is sort of willing coming along. I would say, as you did, sort of it's really about the story and just keep that story in mind and play it fair based on that story. Right. Yeah. I mean, it it shouldn't be if the, if there's going to be betrayal, it should probably be inevitable. Right. Uh, so yes. that, that's what it's fun. Right. right. Because the characters should and players should know. Oh man, this man at arms, right? She yeah. is gonna tear into us at some point, and we better hope we're, you know, she's not at max hit points when we're at none. <laughs> right, and it does matter greatly whether you're using these sidekicks with, you know, a solo player, or you know, a table of two players, or a table of six players, because right. how how those connections are made and the weight that you want to give these sidekicks in a story is going to be very different in those two situations. Yeah, and that's where I think there could have been so much to talk about how to use the sidekick that isn't here because that's a great point. Like there are times when this is like the key person who needs to like take you to the puzzle door and open it with their whatever, right? And then there are times when it's just someone you found in a dungeon that's coming along, but you might develop a real emotional tie to that person, right? Like I was thinking about in this next section where it talks about decide who plays the sidekick mm-hmm. when we ran the acquisitions incorporated adventure for my my son and his middle school friends back then uh high school now um he they met you know this goblin in a particular part and that you wrote and befriended him and they loved this creature so much that the way we handled it was we would take turns with who played them or actually who directed their initiatives so like, you know, you, we'd pass this little tent. It was like the tent it had his name on it and we would pass the tent around so that they wouldn't, you know, it wasn't just one player, you know, running the sidekick. Right. And it just shows you that sort of emotional thing. But they also knew if you don't take care of him, because he had these very obvious hooks and questions. And if you don't take care of him, he, well, he's going to go off and do his own thing. Right. And right. so, so they would work hard to not abuse their little buddy. Yep. So the, the text of Tasha's tells you, that 
a player can play a sidekick as a second character, which would be ideal when you have just one or two players. And I did this when I was running the Essentials Kit adventure for my wife and daughter. They each had their own character, and then there was a sidekick attached to each. You can also watch uh, Enrique Bertrand and exactly. Mike Shea do their YouTube series, which is very endearing. Yep. Now, you can have a player play a sidekick as their only character because what the sidekicks turn into is sort of a simplified version of a regular PC. So if someone doesn't want to get too deep into the rules, especially playing like a warrior, it can just be every time you're trying to hit something with your sword or throw a javelin at it, and it makes it uh, nicer for someone you know, who might get overwhelmed with more rules. Yep. And, and it's also great for players that drop in and out. Oh, I can only make it once every four sessions. All right, when you're here, you're going to play you know, yeah. Splug, the goblin sidekick. Right. There you go. And uh, then you can also have the players play the uh, sidekick jointly. So you take turns with who plays it, or maybe everyone will just decide, okay, this round it's best if they do that. Okay, boom, that's what they do. The final choice of who plays it is the DM, which can work very well if you as the DM are good at juggling many things. For Certain people, I know for me, I don't want to have to deal with that because I have a hard enough time concentrating on everything I should be doing as the DM to start with. So unless it's a super simplified version, that never works for me, but some DMs can easily uh, switch in and out of, and, of that. You role. know, what I like doing is when you initially meet this potential sidekick, I like to run it as DM mm -hmm. because it's not yet them. But once that emotional connection is there and the befriending is there, then I like to pass it on because what will obviously happen is not only do we have a lot to run, but they've got a lot to do. And when nobody owns it, but you own it, everybody just forgets about it. It ends up being, you know, what goes at initiative 20 or wherever, <laughs> if you actually roll for them. I often put NPCs at the end of my combat to lessen their importance, but that will cause them to get forgotten. And so what I like to do is once this NPC matters and if they're supposed to be memorable and especially if they're supposed to be like protected, cared after kind of thing, then I hand that, you know, little sheet of how to run it, the stat block and whatever to a player. And I say, hey, this session, you take care of Groku. You know, next turn, you take care of them and pass it around that way so that so they wake up to like, all oh, right, this thing is with me. I must run it. And that, and then they can choose to role play it or whatever. And that tends to make it more lasting and more important versus forgotten. <laughs> Cause we've all had that time where you go through the entire combat and someone goes, Oh yeah. What did the Aladrin that was with us do during the combat? And you're like, right. Oh, um, uh, hmm. yep. yeah, they were cowering this time. I don't, yeah. Even though they're described as brave and reckless, uh, <laughs> they were, uh, they were hiding. Uh, yeah, my favorite was recently I was running something where the players were so powerful that what I would have the NPCs that were accompanying them do is just like clap or go, yeah, I think you got this. I'm just going to hang out and watch this. Yeah, way to yeah. go. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent blow, warrior. <laughs> That's what I do from a turn. I cheer you. Exactly. Oh, now the monsters go. And uh, the advice given in Tasha's also says to estimate to to estimate and counter difficulty count each sidekick as its own character and i think that's pretty good advice because adding more bodies to the hit point count of yeah. the damage that you have to do as the dm to challenge someone 
you can't underestimate how just adding one person, one creature, one you know character can really blow that all out of whack. Yeah. Yeah, I think the question here is is um how satisfying it really is to play a character of this type when it's your primary. Mm-hmm. Like if you're a warrior, would you really feel like your base stat block damage is gonna carry even with your multi-tacking across levels? You know, it'd be interesting to see. You get improved crit, you know, but I don't know. You know, your base damage might be pretty low, and you might be you might might need to tweak that as DM as you go around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and try it out but but um yeah so it may not quite at times you may find that you have to play with encounter difficulty mm-hmm. depending on how this is playing out but i think this is a fine starting guideline I, I i would have liked to have seen some language here that says adjust it as needed right right and so the one question or several questions that really this does not address and I think it's important to think about as the DM or as a player in a campaign that uses sidekicks, you know, are, does your game actually need a sidekick? If you are playing with one player or two players, obviously, yes, you, you probably could use a sidekick. Things to do damage, things to absorb damage, and things that add to the story, perhaps. Yeah. And round out your abilities, right? If, if exactly. you have no spells unless you add a sidekick, if you have no curing at all and, and would be vulnerable, if you need a tank, Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if you are already running a game with four, five, six, or more players who each have their own character, do you really need the sidekick? If it's something that's just there for story purposes, is it better just to let them travel with the party and make the comments at the time they need to make without actually having a stat block for them to to take up turns, to take up time during a a battle during a game yeah no yeah what does it do to your story to the speed of play to the difficulty of the encounters yeah absolutely and and that not everything these are cool rules to have i'm very glad we have them because they they and they're flexible enough that they can do a number of things Mm -hmm. but you don't always need things to be a sidekick Mm-hmm. So it's perfectly reasonable for like NPCs that they meet in an adventure, say somebody they rescue from, you know, the goblin cave or whatever, does not need to be a sidekick. They can really just be a very small stat block or just a couple lines, you know, armor class hit points and a simple attack line because they're not meant to forever travel with these adventurers and level up and be their best friend. They want to go home, mm-hmm. right? And that's okay. Um and similarly, even powerful creatures they might meet don't have to become sidekicks. They they have other reasons to go off and do things. Or, or if you think about Tome of Annihilation, uh, the guides that go along with the party, I think those many of those will work better as stat blocks than as sidekicks because they're not meant to contribute at that same level. Mm-hmm. For sure, they're they're meant to sort of like I'm taking you through the jungle. Oh yeah, that's a really dangerous thing. You must kill it. I'll be behind this tree hiding. Yeah, right sure. because. That's not my role to be on even par fighting. I'm not getting paid for that. Yeah. And since sidekicks were first introduced, I've had to work with them a bit because when we, uh, when James Intracasso and Will Doyle and I were writing the subsequent adventures after Dragon of Ice Spire Peak, we had to level up mm-hmm. sidekicks uh, since they were introduced in that uh, box set. And what I noticed pretty quickly was even the simplest sidekicks are much more complicated to play than first and second edition characters, full characters were. Yeah. Because 
because at first edition, you know, you were usually hitting things with a weapon or casting a spell, and that was it. There wasn't a lot going on outside of that. No, oh, I have a bonus action. What do I do? Oh, no, I'm helping this person so they get advantage and then do an extra D6 of damage. None of that was there. So even the simplest sidekick is still complicated in terms of just the general population of human beings who play games. Yeah, true. So keep that in mind. And this is, you know, Tasha's represents a simplification from like the Unearthed Arcana significantly, mm-hmm. thank goodness, because they right. were too much like characters, but they probably could have been a tiny bit simpler, right? Mm-hmm. Just a little bit. Right. Yeah. But you, I, 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 as the DM, especially as someone who DMs in public, want to hand a new player one sheet of paper and say, congratulations, you are going to play D&D. These are the two things you need to know. <laughs> Roll this and add this, and that's how much damage you do. You know, this number is your armor class. This number is your hit points. Here we go. And I want something that simple that lets people play D&D. Well, and that's almost a synonym for or metaphor for, for all of Tasha's because I think Tasha's takes a step in moving every character to be a little more complicated mm-hmm. through this sort of design, which is fun and engrossing, but it's harder and harder for me to do that for a player to just give them a level three character that they could just run. Yeah. Because you have to explain so much about how to make this thing work. Yep. And and the sidekicks are a little bit on that edge too. Not terribly so, but I mean, we learned this when we were doing demos of D and D next, even that mm-hmm. you couldn't just give someone a wizard class you had to print out the spells and so dms went and made you know like a one-page version of all the spells because because it was things like pick a spell right it gets complicated yeah it's uh it it is something that is a constant thought in the game design industry is how simple can we make it for new players and how how complex do we need to make it to make the character the players who want the most complex version of a game and keep them satisfied as well. And can those two different styles, can those two different desires merge together within the same game? Yeah. And this is still a lot better than say, you know, when artist Simber comes along with your party, um, (laughs) but, but it's, so, you know, I think it walks a decent line. I'm not being overly critical here, but it's, it's an important consideration, right? I think that's the biggest thing we're seeing is that don't, don't not think through the impact of, of rules like these on your game because it will have an impact and so it's worth thinking through that and 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 figuring out how to to do this efficiently right if if you're playing you know it, it depending on your party it may be good to give them more towards the warrior side right yep. or if you're going to give them a a sidekick that's an expert in that bonus action make sure everybody gets these abilities so that it doesn't take forever to run them and and write them up in some way that's easy and i often do that where i will create a sort of one page stat block for an NPC that makes it really easy on your turn. You do this or this or this. Yep. For sure. So that was sidekicks as presented in Tasha's. So next time on the dungeon master side of things, we will cover some more fun stuff, including maybe another look at avalanches. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Well, first we got parlay with monsters, don't we? That's true. Parlaying with monsters during an avalanche that needs that. that needs its own chapter. We're going to rename this show Mastering Avalanches. Yeah, you know. So. T-shirt. Yep. Thank you. 
Listeners, we really appreciate you spending some time with us. And thank you to our patrons. If you would like to become a patron of the show, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash MMP. Teos, where can people find you on social media? On Twitter, I can be found at AlphaStream. And at my blog, you can find me at alphastream.org, where I recently put up a index of all of our Rhyme of the Frost Maiden review episodes, so you can see which chapter we covered in which part. I think it's kind of helpful. I'll probably do that for Tasha's, too. That is brilliant. Remind me to double your pay. <sighs> Sir, <that's>, uh, <laughs> I feel like the best sidekick right now. Exactly, exactly. Your stat block is too long, though. <laughs> Although, I, I want you to have all the skills you have. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, where I have absolutely no skills whatsoever, which is why Teos is here. And you can talk to us on the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com. And the podcast itself has a Twitter. It's at Mastering D&D. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Teos, another week is down. What are we going to do? Let's go be someone's sidekick. I agree. I'm definitely not the expert. <laughs> I want to cast spells. <laughs> <laughs>